Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. 
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Aspen, Colorado, and the Aspen Food and Wine Classic now in its 37th year. Wow. A lot of people to talk to on this show coming up. Great conversations with uh, iconic chefs Marcus Samuelson and uh, Jeffrey Zakarian and Andrew Zimmern and many others. Now joining me now is someone you all know if you watch the Travel Channel and many other shows. He is the uh, creator and host of Bizarre Foods. He and I used to be on the Travel Channel for years. Uh, you can still see him on the Travel Channel, but he's got all sorts of other adventures we're going to talk about. Of course, I'm referring to Andrew Zimmerman. How are you? I'm fantastic, my friend. How are you? Have you been to Fez? In Morocco? Yes. Yes. So, you know, in the old city, you have all of the, the donkey yeah. uh, traffic, right? And there are people who will help you shop and bring very narrow streets. There's no cars in the old city. and In the Medina. Exactly. And everyone shops with with donkeys right. and if you spend the day in there as a tourist you can hire at very little money at a donkey and someone to lead the donkey and it can hold all your baskets and goodies and your lamp and your rug and it'll wait outside are during there lunch. are there photos of you with the donkey there are photos of me with the donkey okay, but but one of the things that i insisted on doing was that i want to see where the donkeys live and how are they cared you for see, you want to connect and the we went to the donkey dentist which is an all-volunteer veterinary service in Fez that cares for these donkeys. And in the same way that the, the horses, the horse-drawn carriages in Central Park finally have advocates, the God, same yeah. thing in uh, in New Orleans and other cities like this, it became such a hot-button issue. And these donkeys now, the dental treatments, are they get teeth brushed every day. It's the most miraculous thing. But as you were talking about, you know, connecting with real people in a real place, to me, that's what really accelerates that transformative of power course. of travel. And I'm just like, I'm so all about that, and it's just so wonderful every time I get a chance to hear you or be with you because it's like uh, it's like it, there's a small fraternity of people that are so devoted to this and have been for their whole lives, and so it, I feel like a raindrop entering the river sitting here talking to you, <laughs> sucking up as usual. But that's okay. Hey, okay, I'll, I'll tell you a story that happened to me a couple of years ago. I was taking about ten or 12 writers, producers, and directors mm -hmm. from Los Angeles down to, to Buenos Aires. And the hotel said, oh, we'll send limos to the airport. I said, look, the plane gets in at 6 o'clock in the morning. Whatever you're going to send to the airport, the rooms are not going to be ready. So I have a much better idea. Dump the limos. Every maid, bellhop, doorman, anybody who works at the hotel who has a car will pay for it, have them bring their cars to the airport, and each of us will get in one of their cars and we'll go to where they live in their neighborhoods and have breakfast with them. Yeah. And they thought I was crazy. Yeah. You know what happened? Nobody checked into the hotel until 7 o'clock at night because they were having so much fun in the neighborhoods. Yeah, of course. And you know what happened six months later? The people on my trip threw a party and flew through all those people out to L.A. for a party. That's amazing. Because that, they, they got in the neighborhoods. Yeah, of course. And that's the way you do it. Got to go where the real people are. Exactly. So where are the real people today, Mr. Z? Oh, gosh. Uh, in major cities all over the world, uh, living further and further away from... Uh, people who travel to them. Uh, I find that, you know, when you go to the last stop on the subway, you go out into, you know, uh, uh, rural Argentina, right? Go out into the countryside. You know what you've done? You just created a new show. You know what the, the, 
last stop on the subway. Last stop was it, it was in the, every city. You know, I do want to you know go to the Louvre in Paris. You know, I just don't want to spend my whole you know vacation in Paris. Like to see other things. Right. If you want to meet real people and you want to have you know authentic experiences that I think are the most transformative and the most interesting, since sure. a lot of international cities tend to all be alike in many di- many different ways. It's becoming harder and harder to access those folks. So I try to go to the furthest places that I can and work my way back in. And one thing that I found, a lot of it due to, you know, socioeconomic issues, social justice issues, um, marketing issues in some countries where there's state-controlled tourism, is that it's harder to be in touch with the real people because it's not just in America that we are having this great divide between those that have and those that have less with where that widens. It's happening all over the world. Oh, sure. In some cases, this has happened long before it's been going well, on here. Not just as a traveler, but as a journalist, what I'm finding in, in many of these destinations is they're trying to dictate who's allowed to talk to me. Of course. I mean, but it's gotten, it's gotten worse. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you see what goes on. Happened with, to me in Branson, Missouri, when we were shooting there. Of all of all, of all places. places. Well, they didn't. The people down in Branson want to keep it safe for the people who love Branson. So yes. if you're an agitator, you know, and I'm not in the business of making bread, I'm in the business of making yeast. Uh, <laughs> I was <laughs> I was stunned, and uh, I I felt like I was in a 1970s, you know. Soviet spy movie somewhere with my moves controlled everywhere. You had a handler, quite something. You had a no. Handler. We had people following us and being. It was it was it was amazing because we're permitted. I mean, it's the United States. I mean, right. you know, but you know, to get access into a lot of the places that we were shooting, you're working with marketing people and other right. folks who are get who have worked very hard and we're very grateful for them to get us in somewhere. But then what they try to spin is a varnished experience sure. for me, and I'm looking for an unvarnished experience. They try to manage the narrative. And if you if you're trying to manage the narrative, that means you have something to hide or there's a problem somewhere. Well and I do a series on my show called Hidden Gems. It's part yeah. of the travel detective and we have a very good definition of what a hidden gem is. You know, it's not, if there's a brochure or it's in the guidebook, it's not a hidden <laughs> it's gem. Not hidden. Hello. And, and you'd be surprised how many people in the travel and tourism yeah. business don't understand that definition. We actually, it's funny that you say that because when we were pre-proing that particular episode of Zimmern List in Branson, I wanted to go there because I wanted to flip that notion on its head there are no hidden gems in branson it's all it's fabricated it's fabricated it's, and, and everywhere you go every kiosk in the city every place has those hundred different little mini pamphlets with a 10 percent off yes. everything is marketed there there's not an unmarketed experience to be had in branson everything is marketed so i wanted to find out what was appealing about that to other people and it, it ended up being one of the most politically charged and divisive episodes of television <laughs> that I've ever made. And it and happened al- in Branson, Missouri. And also one of the ones that I'm, that I'm proudest of. And it was, it was, it was fascinating. Every, I asked everybody who, who lives there, who I intersect with the same question. I said, what do you like most about Branson? And they all said the exact same thing. It's safe. There's a white nostalgia. How about this? It's at predictable. Work. Yeah. Well, there's a white nostalgia at work there that's that's really palpable and and, and for scary. a globalist like me, very scary. And you know, we shot this you know prior to the 2016 election, and it was one of the things that I came back from and told my friends, I'm 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 really concerned about where this election is going because of what I've seen, and uh, in places like this, and I believe you know it's happening in more places than we realize. 
and then at, I'll make you at Dolly's stamp, Dixie Stampede, yeah. um, they were actually, you know, romanticizing and and the marketing the Confederacy yes, in, the, in the Civil War. And uh, there was there's ten thousand people watching it. Uh, I there there were no people of color there except magically for the Latino family that they seated next to me. And one of my camera guys noticed that they were the same family that was in two of the billboards that he had shot because we always like to shoot signs they, in they the show. Central, they came in central cast. And they, they cast the people sitting next to me. So getting up and leaving to go sit somewhere else was, <laughs> I mean, people were freaking out. And, you know, my producers and directors are like, oh, you know, Andrew, he's so mercurial. He just wants to sit in a different place. <laughs> and it was it was it was an amazing show. But I'll make an assumption here where I don't think I'm going to be wrong. Yeah. And I'm not just picking on Branson because I'm not going to pick on Branson. I'm going to pick on the rest of America as well. Only 37% of America even has a passport. Correct. So they can't think globally. Correct. Because they, they choose not to. Correct. And I, I go nuts on this show every week saying, what's wrong? And you know as well as I do, I, you know, it, you can be a globalist and not leave the United States. A lot of people aren't disposed to but you yeah, can that, those are like my you professors can investigate <laughs> so many other cultures yeah. i tell people all the time like where should i go i say you want to go to a hundred cultures at once go to queens yeah spend a couple days wandering around queens i, I said you're, you're going to be exposed to more new things than you can shake a stick at should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge and to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Hard to believe that this festival, if you will, is in its 37th year. Hard to believe the magazine that we're about to talk about is in its 41st year. And hard to believe that I get a chance to talk to the editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, how are you, of Food & Wine. Peter, I'm great. Thanks for having me. I mean... I've, I've been coming here for a, a good 15 years. Uh, some of it never changes, which is what I love. Some of it changes because it gets bigger and bigger. It becomes a management challenge because everybody wants in. Tickets are not inexpensive. Everybody lines up to it, right? It's a, it's a big deal. It is a big deal, and uh, it's an honor to be a part of it. And for a magazine like yours, I mean, you know, because it's your trademark on the event itself, you get to showcase not just the legendary chefs that we're getting a chance to talk to on this show, but also the new chefs. Well, there, there's a different kind of energy this year as we, we think about the ascendant talent that is here and the mix of, of the new guard and what I call the OGs. And what I love is seeing uh, the young chefs and the young psalms and winemakers meet some of the old guard. Uh, at our trade events. I or, love how you call the young psalms as opposed to the sommeliers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and and that, that interchange and that, that uh, community building is what happens behind the scenes. Um, you know, it, in the past, I don't think we were super intentional about it, but we heard from our community of chefs and, and the talent that this is really the, the high water uh, moment for them for the year. They can step away from the restaurants, their cookbook writing projects, their wineries, whatever it might be, and they can connect with each other and also our audience. So it's, it's really cool to see that young talent blend with, with the, uh, the old guard this year. And evolution has strange direction because when you look at the history of your magazine, it evolved out of Playboy magazine That's in right. 1978. Hef you gave, have to explain uh, this one. Yeah, so the, the founders um, of Food & Wine, there were five of them, including the Batterberries. And for years, they were, they were struggling to get financing, and they put together a couple different deals. And finally, what carried it over the edge is they went to Hugh Hefner, and, and they said, listen, you know, um, <laughs> we believe in this thing, and we want you to support it. 
And, you know, I, I think uh, if you look at, at Hef's diet, it was pretty consistently Pepsi. terrible over the years. Pepsi. Yeah, he wasn't uh, what you would have called back then an Epicurean. But he saw uh, an emerging audience among the men that, that read Playboy that where they cared more about food. They wanted an upgrade. They wanted an upgrade. And so it started as an insert. And I think it was the April set 1978 issue of Food and Wine, or of, of Playboy. Exactly. Yeah. And that magazine has changed dramatically. Yeah, you know, uh, probably haven't read it in, uh, since I was about 20, but... No, you haven't admitted reading it. This is true, for the articles. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I used to write for them. Yeah. So now, did you like my stories? Great stories. Thank you so great much. Stories. Okay, great. Truly, I, I wrote, did the interviews for them and had a great time doing it. At a time when that meant something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, now they're, they're interviewing people who will are nine years old. It's, it's, a, it's a different deal. It's a different deal. How has your magazine changed? You know, I think we're in the middle of, uh, of an evolution that, that reflects the evolution of where our culture is going. Um, I think food culture in particular, if you think about what's happening in society, if you think about what's happening with Me Too, if you think about what's happening uh, with conversations about gender and race, you know, I think the, the food world and restaurants in particular have taken a lot of heat over the past couple of years. There's been some terrible news on the front page papers about bad actors and, and chefs who, who have, uh, have done wrong, you know, but as we, a whole, we've had our share at the network. Yeah, absolutely. And, and exactly. And as a whole, um, I think the restaurant industry, I think chefs are getting a bad rap through this. Um, there are a lot more great leaders and great restaurateurs, um, than there are bad ones. And so part of the, the change that you'll see reflected in the pages and, and online for food and wine is, is a celebration of great leadership a celebration of, of people who are building positive kitchen and, uh, and restaurant culture. And we're doing this through a, a new program we launched called Food & Wine Pro. And Food & Wine Pro is our, our intentional response um, to what's happening in society, what's happening especially in the restaurant space, to say, look, um, there are some changes that need to happen. Uh, we need to focus on personal professional growth. Best practices. Best practices. And you can scale those. And, and part of our role um, you know, for what we call our, our civilian consumers is to surprise and delight, but offer service. And so we can do a similar, uh, play a similar role with the trade, with the pros, and give them the service too. So if somebody's setting up a cool HR program or they, they're uh, offering maternity leave or health care, something that maybe a small business owner doesn't think they can scale, we give them that, uh, that service and show them how they can do it. And of course, from an editorial perspective, if you can explain the process, that's when people finally begin to value the product. Absolutely. And we're talking to Hunter Lewis, the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine. Who's on deck? So, J.J. Johnson, he did a, a rice demo today, uh, and his, his uh, philosophy Now explain is, where he's from. So, J.J. Johnson has a restaurant called uh, The Henry um, in Manhattan, and he's about to open um, a new restaurant that's going to be a fast casual chain called Field Trip. And JJ's all about uh, rice and the culture of rice and, and history of cuisine in America. So he did a rice demo today that was really, really cool. I learned a lot. While, while so if I it. went to his restaurant, I could have rice pudding? You could have what he made today, which was a, um, a black sticky rice with pineapple and edamame and a sweet chili sauce that was incredible. Now, just hearing that, it didn't seem like any of those really go together, but they do. Well, and I think that's this, this is the perspective that J.J.'s bringing to the table here um, at the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen, and, and he's taking what he learned uh, from chips to China and Singapore, and he's melding that with his background, which comes from you know, Afro-Caribbean. 
And you see, the point that you're making is it's all travel related. It's all travel related. You know, travel opens up our eyes. It, it's, you know, travel is, you know, I would think about Anthony Bourdain, and I think that last And we just celebrated, uh, I won't use that word again, we acknowledge, acknowledge the yeah. one-year anniversary yeah. of, his, of his passing. And, you know, really for me, as I thought about that legacy, it, it really, um, it hammered home to me, like travel with a capital T, and that, that travel is all about curiosity, you know, and, and through the chef's eyes, going to a place like China or Singapore or Puerto Rico and, and bringing those ideas back and then, you know, fusing them together through the mind of a chef. And, and that's what we saw today through JJ's demo. It was really cool. Okay. That's, that's one. Yeah. Who else is out there? So Kwame Onwache. Um, Say that three times fast. Kwame Onwache, Kwame Onwache, Kwame Onwache. <laughs> You're going nice to hear that done. name a lot. Um, he just published a, a great book called Notes from a Young Black Chef. Um, it's a killer book. And uh, I'm sure it'll be a movie soon. Um, he is is another ascendant talent here. He's the best new chef uh, with Food and Wine 2019. We just announced it in April, and he's also in the July issue with our other best new chefs. You know, Kwame is somebody who um, he's he's gone through the school of hard knocks. He grew up in the Bronx. Um, he's been cooking since he was a kid, and he's got a uh, an excellent restaurant in Washington D.C. called Kith and Ken, where he's celebrating um, African American foodways and. Uh, he's another person who is, is he's a new voice and, and, and an ascendant voice who, um, you know, very, very soon is, is going to be looked at as one of, one of the OGs. You know, his, his star is rising that fast. I love it. One of the OGs. Are you straight from the hood? Hey, I, I think you and I are OGs, you know? <laughs> I mean, you're playing, playing that awesome classic rock as the, uh, the intro music. I love it. I'm glad you do. Uh, thank you for playing Tom Petty. Oh, okay. Moving right along, though, who's the biggest surprise chef for you right now? The biggest surprise chef, you mean, in terms of emerging? Yeah. Um, I think the, the guy that, that is on everybody's radar right now is JP, Junyan Park, uh, at Atomix in New York. Um, you know, I'm not, I don't have a lot of patience um, for five-hour tasting menus anymore. And, Who um, does? Yeah, yeah. And he, I had a tasting menu at Atomix in January um, that just, it blew my socks off, um, in, in terms of the fermentation and, and the flavors. And he was channeling, um, the, the food of the Royal court, uh, in Korea, um, from way back in the day. And he'd done his research and he was, he was, he was, you know, fusing that with, with modern notions of what Korean cuisine is and sharing that. So we're going way beyond kimchi, way beyond kimchi. You know, there was a ton of uh, different uh, fermentations happening and, and different kimchis happening, but uh, super next level. And it really, really woke me up. And it, it gave me, uh, you know, late last year, I was getting kind of tired of New York cuisine, and I uh, felt like there was a lot of sameness. And, um, and JP's flavors just, you know, they just wake you up, and they give you, uh, give you faith in, in, in what's new and happening in New York. And if you want to be an adventurer, now's the time. Absolutely. I mean, but here's my challenge. I'm all in favor of all that, but somebody has to explain it to me. Right. It's about storytelling. Right. Right? Now, there are some things that will go way overboard and tell you, you know, what their aunt had for breakfast before she made the macaroni. And then there are other menus that don't tell you anything. I need to hear something so I understand how I can relate to it. Well, you know, what's really cool about the menu at Atomix is that each dish comes with a card that is specifically customized uh, and, and uh, it's created by an artist. And it uh, has a, you know, an abstract painting of the dish. And on the back, it tells the full story, you know, multiple paragraphs, not just about the dish and, and what the inspiration and where it came from and how old it is, 
but the artist who created the pottery that the, the dish is in. So See, you, you're, you're closing the loop. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's storytelling. And it's storytelling in, you know, in, in the context of, of one dish, one meal. And how many of those cards go home? A lot All of them. All of them. You take Everyone. them home. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the cool thing. Restaurant playing cards. Hello? <laughs> I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. For those of you who are regular listeners to the show, you know that I never miss up miss an opportunity uh, to invite to the show, uh, wherever I happen to be, the fire chief. And there's a good reason for that. I mean, some of you know I'm also a fireman in New York, but that's not the point. The point is, who's been in everybody's house? Who's been in everybody's hotel? Who's been in everybody's restaurant? Who knows the community better than anybody? That would be the fire chief. So, of course, I had to invite Rick Ballantyne, the fire chief of Aspen, Colorado. Chief, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And now I, I should tell everybody that you've got, I mean, the, I'm, I'm envious of your job. I mean, first of all, you're here in Aspen. I mean, that's not such a bad duty call. And you've been here for what? How many years? I've been on, this is my 30th year in the fire department. Wow. So, they, so they haven't found out. They, yeah. Keep it secret. Okay, good. But you have unique challenges here based on altitude, based on population, based on topography, based on water, based on wind, based on seasons that other communities don't have. Yeah, we have a, especially summertime is a, is a wildfire time of the year. So our crews, many of our crews are trained in wildland firefighting. And, and last year it came in really handy because we had some pretty major fires around here last year. Right, and response time is key. Response time is key. Wildfire response time is the key element of keeping it small before it gets big. And we've certainly seen our share of, of bad situations in California. Yeah, California last year, the Paradise Fire, and others are really showing what, 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 what can happen when things go wrong. Now, the good news about a place like Aspen is that the population has remained relatively stable, um, which means, of course, uh, this, the good news is that you know everybody. The bad news is that you, you know, know everybody. You know everybody, yes. And, and that's part of, the, it's part of the, the, the challenges we have here, and, and, both, and also the joy is you know everybody. And, and fortunately, in our, in our business and emergency response services, you know, most of the times you go to someone's house for a fire, you for know a car wreck, is. or for anything else, they, you know, they're, you're, you know them pretty well, usually. And we have the same situation on our fire department. You know, it's small enough community that everybody does know everybody. Right. But it also means that you get great, great community support. We get awesome community support. The, uh, last year we had, I, I did a little talk at a, at, a, at, a, at a gentleman's club, and by the time I was over, one of the gentlemen there got a boogie wine glass. I'm not sure you heard of him. I he, love the name. Yeah, uh, he... Uh, he, he, he donated $126,000 for us to buy a new wildland fire truck. So it was pretty awesome. Good guy to know. Good guy to know. And, and so got another, we got another donation for another small. In fact, that little fire truck you saw this morning, it was donated from, from residents as well. What most people in America don't realize, and I, 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 I continue to repeat this, is 74% of America's firefighters are volunteer. That's number one. Second of all, they're the ones who've been the key innovators in firefighting developments because they didn't have a budget to play with. They had to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, that's right. Well, luckily, we don't have to do bake sales anymore to buy trucks. But uh, we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we're, we're fortunate in that in that way. But it's still we we, we rely. No more on, pancake breakfasts. No more pancake breakfasts. Okay. But uh, we rely heavily on volunteers. We're primarily a volunteer fire department still after a hundred since eighteen eighty one. As a matter of fact. Exactly. You even even today we were I was riding around in your truck. You've got a river coming through town. It was raging today. 
It is raging. It's up two feet from yesterday. This this year is the biggest snowpack we've had since I've been here, certainly. In fact, they're still skiing on top of the mountain right now. Yeah. But the bottom line is you have to do swift water rescue then. Swift water. We're, our crews trained last night for swift water rescue, and it's it's dangerous right now. We urge everyone to stay away from the river. Exactly, because people don't realize even if the current's moving at like three or four knots, if you're not protected, you're going with it. Bye-bye. Yeah, I, I uh, actually I have a, a very favorite line when it comes to swift water rescue: "Only dead fish go with the flow." <laughs> you get the concept. I get the concept. Yeah. yeah, but when you have that kind of community support, what about fire codes? Fire codes are a big part of what we do here. We have a we have a very strong fire fire protection district in terms of fire um, codes, and that's what helps keep a lot of these big homes safe around here. You know, our district, our volunteer fire department protects twenty eight billion dollars in property. So yeah. it's extensive. Now, for people visiting Aspen, you know, it's it's. I, I like this. I liken this to the people who visit Las Vegas. You know, there are no clocks there. They don't take their meds. They're not aware of the time. They're dehydrated. You have that here plus altitude, plus a lot of pot stores now. Oh yeah, <laughs> I passed one on the way into the studio. It seems like that's. Did you that, notice? No, that's no. the first stop a lot of people make, and it's probably not the best thing they should do as soon as they get here. But it happens, so it, that we get a lot of calls on that. But we're talking. You need hydration, seriously hydration. Yes, drink as much water as you can before you drink as much alcohol as you can. That's what I suggest. <laughs> Is that the motto of the fire department? <laughs> no, no. no. I just want to make sure. We're way past that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gave up water. <laughs> but the bottom line is people, you know, a lot of your calls are medical calls because people don't pay attention. Yeah, we, there's, there are a lot of medical calls here. Mexi car wrecks, that kind of stuff as well, is what we respond to more than just about anything. Right. The story that you told me this morning, which, which you know, could only happen here, right? You have a brand new member of your fire department. He's at home last night. And a, a car's driving down the road. And for some strange reason, a wheel, a wheel ca- comes off the axle and takes off on its own and travels about a quarter of a mile. And where does it end up? It, in, it ended up in his gas meter and knocked his gas meter off. It was bizarre. I told him to go buy a lottery ticket today because the odds of that happening are about 10 million to one. And the good news is nobody got hurt. Nobody got hurt. I heard the alarm last night. Yep, you heard the alarm. And yeah, he, he, he was pretty upset. His, his, his wife and two dogs were at home as well. So everybody's good. And he's a new member of the department. Brand new member of the department. He just his first uh, meeting was last month. He's uh, he's very excited about it. He's going to catch a lot of crap at the next meeting. I he's going to catch a lot of crap. Uh, it happens. <laughs> it happens. I know. What's the one thing you want people to know when they're coming to Aspen? The one thing I want people to know when they come here is to to have fun. Number one, number two, be safe. Uh, like I said, the, the rivers are roaring pretty fast. If you go near the river, stay you know stay 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 back for, stay back from it. Hiking is wonderful here this time of year. Uh, hydrate and just have fun and be safe. You got it. And how many restaurants are there in Aspen? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> a lot of restaurants in Aspen. And, but we're very and fortunate. What a, what, a, what a coincidence. So many of the great ones are within walking distance of the fire station. It's planned that way. <laughs> Rick Ballantyne, chief of the Aspen Fire Department for 30 years, by the way. And thanks for taking me around on the run today. Yeah, it, was, it was fun. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. 
So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest, celebrity chef, restaurateur, television personality, whatever the hell that means. What that means. Jeffrey Zakarian, how are you, sir? I'm great. And I was thinking of City Harvest also. I don't know if you yes. know City Harvest. I'm the president of the Food Console for the last seven years. Uh, and it's really an extraordinary um, organization that I would love to talk about just briefly. Well, let's do it because we waste so much food in this country. Oh. I mean, and, and look, I used, to, I used to see this. You're in the restaurant business. I see this in the airlines. You know, you land, there's all that uneaten, unserved food. Garbage. Where does it go? And all the health regulations that says you can't preserve it. There's so much of that stuff you can do if you just figure out a distribution system. And that's really what you've done. That's the that's the pro, uh, problem and the process. But it's all process, like Andrew said before. It's about figuring it out, which is easy to figure out. We did, I did not grow up with expiration dates on food. Do you Do you remember any of those expiration dates? No. You'd look at no, it. No, you'd you touch know, it. No, can I tell you my like, expiration you know, date? I'm not going to eat that. No, my expiration date, go in the refrigerator, take out the bottle of milk, take a sniff. Exactly. That's it. So, I mean, I know, of course, we're you know processing all kinds of food and, you you know, safety, I, I totally understand that. Right. I'm all for it. But City Harvest was born uh, 35 years ago uh, because a lot of New Yorkers can't afford to eat uh, at least one meal a day, a good meal a day, which hopefully is breakfast, in my, in my opinion. Um, so City Harvest, what it does is kind of genius. They have taken that issue of the, the expiration date, which was, I believe, a fabrication of the retail food industry to sort of... Or before the lawyers got involved. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you got to throw it away. Or, and what they do is they have to disperse this food. They have to give it away or throw it away, right? And we have been able to go with trains and trucks get the food, they ship it to us, they get a tax deduction. It comes to us very quick, quickly before the expiration date uh, is, is done, and we give it away. We put it on 20 trucks, and it's kind of genius. No cost to them. And they, it's simple. It's simple. It's a simple model, and it's a feel-good model. They feel good. We feel good. But and wouldn't that be a win-win for everybody? It is a win-win for everybody, and so that's what City Harvest does. And It's about a million meals a day. We process 70 million pounds of food a year. That Wait, would have a million gone in meals the gar- a day just in New York? Yes, that would have gone in the garbage. It would have gone right in the garbage, and that's the shame. Yes, we, we blow through 20% of our food in this country by just not knowing how to distribute it. It's sad. Or can I make a personal uh, admission here? Because we don't know how to shop. We don't. I mean, I always buy more than I need, and then I'm, I've wasted it. We do. It's, that's another. That's a, that's a whole show, yeah. which we could make a good show out of that. We could. To show people how to shop. Yeah. Um, but so we have this mission and we are expanding like crazy. Unfortunately, the need is expanding, but we're expanding. So we, we have more and more food, than, so we have to give it away. And what we don't do is give away high fructose stuff, all the sugar. We, we send back what they send us, so they only give us what we ask for. Ah, so we so don't, they're, they're not we, dumping. They're not dumping crap on us, and we wouldn't give that because we're teaching these people through mobile markets how to eat. I have to tell you, this goes back about 20 years ago, but I don't think it's changed, which is driving me even more nuts. I was doing a story in rural Kentucky, uh, and I had to go to the school systems to interview some of the people there. We're talking junior high school and high school. And I'm in the school talking to the teachers, and a bell rings. Now, me, I grew up in New York. A bell means, oh, it's change of period. Class has changed. They're going to people. No, that's the bell that the donut cart is in the hall with these massively sugar-glazed pieces of, you know, and the kids are like animals. Yeah. It's, 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 it's one constant sugar rush after another. But it's ter- it was what we do. It's our fault. I mean, this is what we're allowing to happen. It's terrible. But it's not only that. Those things are shelf-stable. So they could, you know, you're going to get it. If they don't eat it today, they're going to eat it tomorrow or the next day. You can day. carbon date those donuts. <laughs> it's just what we're doing is terrible. And obesity in young people, don't get me started, what's happening in this world with type 2, type 1 diabetes. It's just, we're just, it's right there. The last 30 years, it's, we've created it. And there you have it. 
We have obesity and diabetes off the charts. Okay, so now we've talked about this at the consumer shopping level. Yes. We've talked about it in terms of basically the distribution level to get yes. it to the people who need it the most. What about the restaurant level? Well, we do what we can. We're a, we're a business. I mean, we're in business. I have almost 1,000 employees because I'm in business to sustain these employees and their families. So if you think of it, a restaurateur like Andrew or myself or, you know, I mean, I'm not as prolific as like a Jean-Georges. But just think when, we, when we're in business and we stay in business, we are feeding not 125 employees. We're feeding their families. So it's like three or 400 people we sustain. Uh, so we're, I'm always thinking that that's in my back of my mind is what we're doing, what our mission is. We make a little money, but not much. This is something, it's a passion play. We love to cook. We love to entertain. We love hospi- hospitality. This, this is on another level. If you go in QSR, that's, you're going to make some money, and you can do that. That's fine. But as far as I'm concerned, we, just, we try to inform as best as possible. So there's so much information out there right now. It, it boggles my mind that we're eating worse in some cases than with all the information we have than we used to. So... I grew up eating like you did. Like this is what it was. Like Andrew said, you know, it's it's fresh. It's not sprayed. It's delicious. You know where it comes from, and and you bought just what you needed. You didn't throw anything away. Our portion size is nuts. What we feed people, what we ask them to eat. You go to a restaurant now, and the, the customer is expecting to eat the main course and have enough to take 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 home for another meal. That's that's just wacko. That's bonkers, and it's our job to say no to that and give a proper portion. I don't care. Some people say our portions are small. I'm fine with that. Those are appropriate portions to eat three, an appetizer, main course, and dessert. It's appropriate. That's what you should have. 2,000 calories a day. This is what you should be eating. If you want to have a double that, we'll sell it to you, but we're not going to sell you. We're going to sell it to you again. We're not going to give you extra, you know? <laughs> so it starts so with let me that. See. That's so the motto starts. of the Lamb's Club is no extras. No, not at all. I didn't want to say that. <laughs> The model I was is, giving you a hard time. The model is, like, you should cook and eat what you should be cooking and eating in appropriate amounts. Right. So you don't see this happening in a lot of European cities. You know, you have appropriate small portions and things like that. Uh, but even in Europe, it's the obesity is skyrocketing, you know. It's true. Because they've learned bad habits from, from us and from QSR. But your portion size at a restaurant like the Lamb's Club has been redefined. Then. Redefined, redefined it years ago, even before the Lamb's Club, when I was at... Uh, Patroon, uh, which is a steakhouse, when I was at uh, 44th of Royalton, which is many years ago, I always thought that we should be eating appropriately and that at the end of the meal, you feel good. You don't feel decimated by all the food you have. You mentioned steakhouse. Let's talk about some trends. Sure. What's trending in terms of the types of food being sold these days, in terms of even the, even the new restaurants? More steakhouses uh-huh. or less steakhouses? We go through a phase. You know, it's like fashion, you know. Bell bottoms, no bell bottoms. Wide lapels, peak lapels, no peak lapels. You know, it's it, now we're into like pants for men. Now they have, they have. We're back to like uh, you know the the creases. What do you call them? The uh, pleats. Yeah. Because it's you know it's come around. And what's come around? Remember, it was no pasta ten years ago. Shame on you. Now that there's an Italian restaurant opening every every second of the day. I would. Uh, uh, which is I think that, is fantastic. But I'm thinking there might be a correlation to the economy as a whole. If the economy is doing better, more steakhouses. You know, I, I want to I want to agree with you, but I've been thirty plus years in this, uh, and steakhouse is just one of those things. They've gotten kind of better because the meat has gotten kind of better. But we're I am selling more steak than I've ever sold in any of my restaurants. Like it's insane, and that surprises steak. you. Well, yeah, it's expensive. It's expensive. It's so expensive for me. Actually, I don't want to sell that much steak because I can't afford a piece of steak. A twelve ounce piece of steak is twenty five dollars. A real good prime. Which is no, there's no reason to eat anything else. Right. Uh, but it's 25 bucks. 
So for me to charge a 30% food cost, which is a normal industry standard, I'd have to charge $78 for a 12-ounce steak. And now people are paying for that. It's kind of shocking. And they're not blinking. Not blinking an eye. I was at a, a, a over to Hudson Yards, a, a new restaurant. I won't mention the name because it was really good. But I had two. You could, you could tell me. Uh, well, it was the tack room. Okay. And it was excellent. But I, I saw the expansion in, in the food costs because of what people are willing to pay now. So it's this Elysian Fields incredible lamb and two chops for 70 something dollars. It's like people are willing to pay that. But they're making a choice. They're making and, a choice. So the choice. Is it going to be the expensive meal? Yes. Or X, something else? Or X. The model of the steakhouse is, is odd. It's a low labor cost model usually because you don't need a lot of people in the kitchen with tweezers. You know, <laughs> touching food. It's not one of those, you, here's a steak, here's the Put plate, it on the grill, go, put it on the plate, right. So it's a low-cost model. What, and it's, it's a low-cost labor model. But it's a high-cost food cost model. So you'll sacrifice 30, 40, 40% in labor. in labor with a food cost. You'll have a higher food cost because you want to sell this $150 bottle of wine. That's what, that's what, a steak, that's what steakhouse models are. Exactly. We'll give you the steak. We're not going to make money in the steak, but we're going we're gonna to whack you on the wine. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Drew Niporant, who owns the world. He, uh, how many restaurants do you have? Oh, we have several, but uh, don't no, be mo- don't be modest. Well, there, there are now fifty Nobu's around the world. Nobu Five hotels. zero, believe it or not. Yeah, uh, that means if Nobu traveled every week for a year, he might it. get to, he, he might forget get to everyone. I mean, it's unbelievable. And uh, of course, Tribeca Grill just we just celebrated twenty nine years. Well, I remember when you opened that. Yeah. Morache, which opened in 85, has morphed into Batard, which just celebrated five years, but I've had that for 35 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, and then even restaurants like Rubicon in San Francisco, I closed after 14 years, but most of my restaurants stand the test of time. They do. And what's the most bizarre location of a Nobu? Montenegro. <laughs> I mean, you, you came where, right out with that. You, where you is didn't it? even hesitate. <laughs> they're they're going to be probably, you know, uh, I think there's going to be we, when we opened the second Nobu, it was called Next Door Nobu. Yeah. I think there's going to be Nobu under a, a manhole cover or, you know, it's unbelievable. It's just uh, they, keep, uh, they, they keep coming around. Okay, I always have to ask this question, especially when you're dealing with 50 of these. Yeah. I'm sure people are knocking down the door, please open one here, please open one here. What yeah. is the one place you said absolutely not? Um, well, there's two in Moscow, so I guess I said not, and we opened two in Moscow. <laughs> I'm the conservative one of all the partners, so I'm the one who's basically Well, there's no. you. Yeah. There's Nobu, of course. Uh, Robert, De Niro Robert De Niro and a fellow named Mayor Tepper. Uh, just, it's like the Beatles. There's only four. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's a long story, and you know, there's a lot of history now because we're 25 years into it. Amazing. And it all started at a little restaurant in West L.A. That's right, Matsuisa in uh, La Cienega, yeah. 1987. He was a 10 best chef, by the way, for Food & Wine magazine. In fact, he was uh, named with my chef, Deborah Ponzak, from Montrachet back in 1989 when the event was in Snowmass. So that was my first one coming. So I've been coming probably about 25 years. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I love it here. It's, it's beautiful. And I was just in Melbourne, Australia. Right. And there's a no, Nobu. And Nobu, there's a Nobu. I, I, he showed up. Yeah. He oh, was the, he, he, there. He, he, there was a sighting. Would you go to the Sopranos uh, thing? They, you know, the Sopranos are touring. And no, I did not go to the Sopranos Melbourne. thing. No. I mean, it's like, 
because you know one of the sopranos uh, steve sharippa yeah he, he was bobby bacalao he he took a picture in front going like this but, did he really yeah <laughs> yeah well listen i still watch steve on on blue bloods yeah he's pretty good he, he's pretty good yeah. he's pretty good he was a hard worker okay so it's one thing to, to open all these it's another thing to maintain them right how do you do that you know um people have to make money and everybody has to make money not just the ownership so when you, I, I started this in 1994, and I put the sushi chefs in the tip pool. Now, that might seem like a small thing, but the sushi chefs at Nobu make $100,000 or more a year because of somebody making that decision. Because the labor law allowed you that if you're working at a counter, you can be tipped, whereas most kitchen workers are not allowed to be tipped. So that's just one example. And then the waiters make a king's ransom there. And when people make a lot of money, they keep their jobs. And, and it extrapolates. We keep uh, you it know, becomes promoting a It people. becomes a profession. It really does. It really does. But, um, you know, the Nobu thing is proof positive that uh, a brand that people really want, they want it in their lifestyle. They used to complain when there were more than one or two, or you know, because you were spreading so yourself too thin. Now, uh, the consistency of the food is so good. And the sourcing. And the, that's very important very, because we, we wouldn't be able to get good fish. In fact, uh, nobody didn't want to open in Sao Paulo, Brazil, because he couldn't find the fish. Now, we're going to open them in Sao Paulo, Brazil, I think. But, um, yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, I, 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 I do events all over the country. I'm doing one next week in Jackson Hole. We couldn't get products years ago in Jackson Hole. Now you can get anything. It's all sourceable. Exactly. So if somebody says they can't get it, go get somebody else who can because they can, they can get it. It's amazing. Amazing. How many Nobus in L.A.? Well, there's Malibu, Malibu. which everyone loves. There's uh, La Cienega, Matsuiza, and then there's another one where La Rangerie used to be. Is There's a Nobu. So on La Cienega. Right. So there's two on La Cienega. <laughs> but one's a Matsuiza, but it's really Nobu. And, of course, you got a hotel in Las Vegas. And there's a Nobu hotel. Inside of Caesars. Caesars. Exactly right. You know, we're looking now at the at the growth of b lifestyle branding. Right. Right. So there's now a restoration hardware hotel. Right. There's a there's a uh, uh, another one you know in Detroit made by the guys who make watches. Right. There's Equinox has got a, a hotel opening up. Right. Exactly. Shinola. Shinola. That's I, the one in Detroit. Yeah. Exactly. I just saw Andrew Carmelini and he told me he's opening in Detroit. So I know. It's amazing. So are, are you opening up a Drew Hotel? No, I, you know, listen, I'm very content with what I've done over the years. My restaurants have stood the test of time, thank goodness. So, you know, and I have a terrific wife and kids, so I'm happy. And the only big challenge is, can I get a table at Nobu? Anytime, Peter. Oh. You and the man. <laughs> if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest, tennis pro, sound engineer for Hall & Oates, promoted concerts, probably ran heavy equipment. I, I have no idea except to tell you that he can't hold the job because he's now the mayor of Aspen, and his name is Mayor Tory. Not Mayor Tory last name or Mayor Tory first name. It's Mayor Tory. Well, uh, thank you, Peter. Now you have to explain. You, you're the only mayor I've ever met with only one yeah. name. I don't know if I'm the only one, but yeah, I can Trust appreciate Trust me, you are. <laughs> uh, yes, all right, I'll start with that. My, my full name is Tory. That's T-O-R-R-E. Uh, as I tell the story, and I'll be as brief as I can, my parents, uh, my mother was pregnant with me, and as they were deciding on a name for me, Troy, Trevor, Trey, Courtney, they couldn't come up with it. Uh, I was born. At and, least it wasn't Moonbeam. Yeah, right, well, yeah. it could have been, actually. Could have been, if you ever meet my parents, you'll understand. <laughs> um, 
and so uh, I was given my father's birth name. My, my birth name is Ronald Wayne Moranian III. I'm half Armenian, very proud of my heritage and my family. Um, but a week after I was born, uh, inspired by the Union Jack, the British flag, my father had a bolt of lightning thought, and that was Tory. That's the name we were looking at. He says to my mother, Diane, he says, Diane, I think Tory is what we were going for. She, she agreed. She said, you're absolutely right. So I was nicknamed Tory about a week old, and that stuck. So it, it was legally changed years later, and uh, now I have one legal name. Think of all the money you saved with ink during your campaign. I'm already doing great work for the city just by that. <laughs> Saving everything. That's right. Let's talk about the city. How has it changed? Over the years that I've been here, which is 25 years, uh, it's changed a bit. You know, um, change is inevitable and we keep moving forward. I think we're all uh, accepting and happy about that. But some of the outside influences, you know, extreme wealth in our community. Now, extreme wealth is not a bad thing on its own, but oftentimes it, it, it can buy convenience and it can buy exclusivity. Uh, and those it also are, creates a housing shortage, too. And it's created the housing shortage, and then you're, you're putting your finger right on it. So, you know, we've seen a little loss of our community and the character of what made Aspen so great. And for those of you that don't know Aspen, part of what makes Aspen so great, is it's a place to be you. It's a place to respect nature and commune with nature. Uh, and then beyond that, it's a place to support others in your community. And uh, you can't do that if you don't have people living in your community. So uh, the community's changed a bit. Aspen has changed a bit. It's still, and I, I travel a decent amount, and I'll tell you what, it's still the greatest place on earth. I love it here more than anywhere else. But we have our challenges. It's a question of just the ebb and flow of population, too, because there's the base population, and then there's the visitor count. Absolutely. We're a, we're a town of 6,700 people. You're small. You're <laughs> tiny. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but You're we, welcome. <laughs> but we swell to some near uh, 30,000, as, as people say. Right. During Aspen Food and Wine, you're up there. This weekend, we're there. You are. You are. So, but this is a weekend that economically helps you through, uh, through the rest of the year. Absolutely. You know, we embrace food and wine, not just for the economic benefit that it is to our community, but the celebration that it is. You know, this actually for us in Aspen, it didn't start with food and wine, the magazine or, uh, or the celebrity chefs that are here now. It started really as just a bunch of people getting together to share good wine, have good meals, and be together as friends in a community. Again, that's 20-something years ago. So it's evolved. It's grown. Uh, it's an amazing event these days. Uh, and the community still embraces it. We love it. Now, other than housing and other than trying to maintain a sense of community within that problem, yeah. what are your other challenges? Crime? Crime is not big on our list. You know, we're very blessed to have uh, still an incredibly safe community. But uh, we See, I have this vision that your biggest crime is like Vuitton theft. Yeah, uh, no, no, those are the biggest crimes. Uh, I, that's what I'm saying. Somebody <laughs> stole a Chanel bag. Come it's on. It's true. Like. <laughs> it's true. We get hit. We get hit every once in a while. You know, the biggest crime around here for locals actually is uh, when somebody will borrow your bike to get home from a bar. You know what? I have the same problem <laughs> where I live, except where I live, it's an island. We find the bike. Yeah. Oh, it comes back normally. Yeah. But still, for that night, it's borrowed. That's yeah. our crime. <laughs> Uh, so our more important issues, uh, uh, top of the top of the ladder for a lot of us is the environment. You know what we're looking to do here from Aspen is to spread the message about environmentalism and environmental leadership. Uh, now that doesn't just mean the trees and the water and the the wildlife. That also means about us as people as well. Our health, our natural health, is very important to us as well. And we've gotten away from that a little bit, so we need to get back to that. We also have a, an issue with our traffic and transportation. 
we're a, a, a one a two lane highway coming into a box canyon. Uh, so we, as as we become to to have more commuters, as you were saying, because of our housing shortage, transportation and traffic and its impacts are are an issue for us as well. And then there's there's a host of others as well. And then you have your airport, which, by the way, during Aspen Food and Wine has about 40 G5s parked out there. Yeah, yeah it looks, it's a pretty special place in all the world. <laughs> uh, we're actually undergoing a, a new master planning for our airport where we're looking to make some improvements and maybe some upgrades out there. Lengthening the runway? A little bit. That would be helpful. Yeah. It would. Well, you know, our primary concern is, of course, safety. Of course. Safety is number one. But, uh, you know, we've, uh, yeah, we're looking to make our facilities work better for everybody, for our locals and our visitors. I got gotcha. you. Mayor Tory, I'm, I'm looking for the last name and I just can't find it. Tory's enough. Uh, Tory is enough. Mayor Tory, thanks for joining us. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, spare, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel, I've had my share, man. We talked to the fire chief here about his challenges. We talk, and, and, his, and his hopes, of course, and then, of course, to the mayor and about his commitment to the environment. Well, what better guest to have to follow that than the CEO of the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies, Chris Lane. How are you, Chris? Thank you. Doing great. Uh, you've been doing this work for, what, a quarter of a century? About 30 years. Yeah, a little more than a quarter. Now you know why I failed math. Yes. <laughs> but Aspen seems to be a perfect place to do it. It is. This is a town founded on... The environmental movement back starting in 1945, even that far back. I remember when I was a student at the University of Wisconsin back in April of 1970, Earth Day. That was the first Earth Day, and we were doing a story about Aspen then. Yeah, we were lucky that uh, Elizabeth uh, Papka in 1945 came here and founded a culture, that, and Walter Papka, her husband as well, on environmental protection. I mean, they were way ahead of their time. Way ahead, yeah, yeah. But what was it like then that gave them the idea they needed to do this? Well, they, I, th I think there was something in Elizabeth specifically. She founded, she and Walter founded the Aspen Institute, the Aspen Music Festival, and the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies. And she realized that as important as the culture and the arts is protection, protection of our environment. And ever since then, from that time, even now, and ACES now is 50 years old this year, we are... It's a, not a battle, but a lot of work has to be done to keep protecting our environment, not loving this place to death. So much of it, I would presume, in fact, I think you would almost insist, has to be on education. Absolutely. At, at our organization, our mission is educating for environmental responsibility. We believe black, white, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, everyone will make the right decision if you're environmentally and ecologically literate. But in order to do that, in order to be literate, you've got to be able to connect the dots so people understand how it relates to their own personal daily lives. Absolutely. And that's connecting. I mean, I'll give you an example. Go ahead. You go to a hotel. There's a plastic card on the bed, which I always think is somewhat ironic that it's plastic, saying, help us save the environment by not washing your towel. And you go, excuse me, right? Because the cynic in you goes, they just want to save money. Plus, they, they gave us a plastic card. Right. So you have to be able to go beyond that so people can know that they're taking the, the takeaway information they're going home with is something that they can apply to their lives. Exactly. And that plastic card, just so you know, or plastic in general, could literally be in the ocean in two months. And you say to yourself, how's that possible? We live 2000 miles from the ocean. Well, this is where plastic microplastics are getting into our oceans from primarily rivers 
and not what you think, which is fishing ships and port cities. So yeah, that's a plastic's a big issue. It's a big issue for Aspen and getting people to apply it to their lives is not easy, but Aspen does pretty good job of that. And there are lots of examples of that. Well, let's start at the lowest level, right? You go to the supermarket, paper or plastic. Well, in the city of Aspen, we've banned plastic paper bags, right? So you're going to get paper or nothing. What about water bottles? Water bottles. We haven't gotten there yet, but that's something we're working. Everybody here drinks water. They're drinking water out of plastic bottles. And we have the cleanest water probably in the country coming out of the tap. Yeah, but you still, yeah, right. But we're talking plastic though, too. Where? In, in the bottles. Yeah, but we're not, we're not, we're, we're trying to get an initiative. I and mean, the city's been working with yeah. this, as Mayor Tory just said, to get people out of their plastic bottles and into reusable containers or no containers. Exactly. And that's a simple, that's a one minor little simple thing. There's a hundred others. That what when you what come about to this sing, town, single use plastic items like straws? We are moving to paper, paper straw. I had a paper drink from a paper straw yesterday. The downside is about four-fifths through your it drink starts to curl up a little bit. But Here's an idea. Yeah, just don't use a straw. Don't use a straw. That's even better. How about that? Yeah. All right, but that's, <clears throat> that's the basic bottom line day-to-day stuff, but big picture stuff. Well, big picture, uh, this town is making big steps, and I could, I could, can I rattle off a few of those? Go ahead. I mean, one is our mass transit system. While Mayor Tory mentioned we have a traffic issue, we also have the best mass transit system in the world. I'm sorry, in this state. And you can get pretty much anywhere on a bus system. We also have WeCycle, which is a public biking system that allows people to get wherever they want to go. Um, Why is it the best <clears throat> mass transit system in the state? Because it's the most, it's got the highest ridership per, and I think it's per mile, of any system in the state. That's why it's the best. It's the densest. So with the lowest mm-hmm. carbon footprint then? Arguably, we're, they're purchasing electric buses in about two years. It'll come online. So we're moving to electric buses. We've got hybrid buses. We've got um, natural gas-fueled buses as well. But, yeah, that's, those are small steps. All right, like your statement about plastic ending up in the ocean, what are the lessons that you're learning from your research here in Aspen that need to be applied elsewhere? Well, climate change is what this town is most concerned about because what we see is our mountains melting. Now, you didn't see it this year, but if you were here one year ago today, you wouldn't see snow anywhere. Right now, if you drive 20 miles that direction up Independence Pass, you can still ski up there. In fact, they skied last weekend on this mountain. So climate change is going to move. It's going to make many ski resorts extinct. It's going to move the high elevation ski resorts to higher elevations, and they'll be the last ones left. So what this town is united around is fighting climate change. And an example of that would be Aspen Skiing Company that took a coal mine methane recovery project. You know, coal mines, when they're abandoned, leak methane for decades. Right. So Aspen Skiing Company came in and said, why don't we burn that methane? Methane's 26 times the carbon warming potential as carbon dioxide. Why don't we burn it, generate electricity, and then we're stopping warming and generating electricity. And they went and did that. It was a highly successful project. And, and that get, could be applied you know, elsewhere. Now. That could be applied almost where there's coal mines anywhere. And coal, you know, we're losing about 64 coal power plants per year in this country, despite our president's incentives for coal. We're still losing about 64 based purely on, based purely on uh, economics. Wind power is coming online and coal right. is more expensive. So, um, but the economics can't drive it. The conscience has to drive it. Well, yes and no. The economics are driving it and will continue to drive oh, it, I at know least that. when it comes to coal. That's inevitable, yes. Yeah. But the economics could also drive it the other way. It could. But and, that, it, and that's the problem. That's possible, but that's, the trend is not going that way. Coal, solar, wind, uh, hydro, geothermal, prices continue to go down relative to coal. 
And as long as that stays that way, you got a shot. And it should stay that way because it's a lot. Uh, those don't spill. You don't have to dig up the earth. You know, it's a lot more efficient. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. Marcus Samuelson, <laughs> one of the legendary chefs who I've known for 25 years. Yeah. We've been all over the world together, and and the owner of the Red Rooster in New York, and many other places, as a matter of fact. But we did that, I want to say, before internet. Oh, no, we did it way before internet. Way before internet. I'll give you a name, Aquavit. Yes, pre-internet. That was pre-internet. <laughs> yeah. That was where we first met at that yeah. restaurant. Yeah. It was very much in, in New York. Very much in the heydays of fax machines. If we so were lucky enough to have I look at, I look at it. I look at the world like... Pre-MTV, you know, so pre or post-MTV, sure, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Food Network. Right. And Internet, right? Because I can send, that's the way for me to, like, document, like, before my, you know, before my, my parents was always about after the Second World War, World War or the First World War. That right? was their right? That was, that their, was their, like, yeah. great grandparents, my grandparents, my parents. And for me, it's really, uh, as a kid, Berlin Wall coming down. 1989. Huge, huge thing for me. Right? I was there. And then now, I have to say, uh, post 9-11 like yeah. those are the things I know but now that you mentioned post 9-11 how mm. did that impact your ability to do your to do your job oh my god Peter I'm going to tell you something like so you know we all know Michael Lomonico amazing guy we love Michael yeah. love Michael he always gave me by the way Michael has Porterhouse in New York yeah and he's got another restaurant downtown now yep. I mean yep. really great stuff and so I used to cook at uh, the Towers um, windows of the world. Windows of the world. The weekend before 9/11, every year, obviously, it was not. You didn't think about it. 9/11. It was just something we did for my charity, CCAP, and I did that. And no, knowing that 40 people that I knew, dishwasher, cook, service, are no longer with us, it changed me. And it, you know, you're not quite ever the same. For me, it started asking me the question, why am I in New York? What am I doing? I, come from, I grew up in a very comfortable country like Sweden. So I moved. That was my answer. I'm like, if I'm going to, I moved from where the time Warner Center is now, right, to Harlem. And that was really when I started the journey of Red Rooster. Didn't open it for another eight years. Right. But I, that, that sort of... Uh, stop in your career or, or, or it was a catalyst your catalyst and not knowing asking yourself the big question made me move not leaving new york because i love it so much but i needed to tra transform and that's what i did exactly and by the way 9 11 to me seems like it was either yesterday or a million years ago wow. there's no middle ground wow where, where, where were you i was then on nbc at the today show yeah i was in the green room about to go on the air when they cut away uh, Matt Lauer cut away and said, uh, and they went to a wide shot of the World Trade Center, already smoke coming out of it, saying, it appears a small plane has hit the building. Yeah. I took one look at that picture. I ran out of the green room. I went down to the control room. I said, everybody listen to me. That was no small plane. Wow. And I'll tell you why. And as I started to explain why, the second plane hit. Why was you, how could you be that clear? How did you, like, what, what well, was it? Well, I specialize in yeah. aviation. And on a day like that, wow. which you remember was 2020 visibility, it was a beautiful day. The day yes. before was raining. Yeah. But on that Tuesday, it was a beautiful, clear day. Yes. And the other reason is this. If a small plane had hit the building, I mean a really small plane, it mm -hmm. would have bounced off. Yeah, you're right. Because it's, it's This plane was coming yeah. in at full speed. 
Um, and the building essentially absorbed that shock wave. We mm. saw it on a video later. Mm. And, and there you know it. But wow. I mean, and then who knew? From, you know, we knew within within forty five minutes we were essentially yeah. at war. You yeah, know? we we I've been to many countries in the world. I've traveled. I always feel like I'm the most traveled person in the room. I'm now just the second most traveled person <laughs> in the room, so by by a mile. So tell me, how many have you been to? Fifty countries. I've been to a few more than that. What seventy five? One hundred and fifty-one. One hundred and fifty-one. But who's counting? Who's counting? No, come on. So that means that you just touched the airport. That counts. No. Doesn't count. What counts? Like when you said, when Peter said, like, I've been to this country, what have we done? Well, first of all, you got to immerse yourself in the neighborhoods. You got to immerse yourself in the culture. Nice. You got to have conversations. Mm. People forget that. It's not about going through a, a guidebook. A guidebook is only going to give you a phone number. Mm -hmm. Then you have a conversation. Yes, yes. I mean, the internet is only going to give you a phone number to have a conversation. Yeah. Anybody who thinks, who works for me, and I ask them a question and they come back and they say the web said they're fired because. Yeah. You can't depend on that. No. And the same thing applies to travel. And I'm, I tend to be a contrarian traveler. Mm. So if the guidebook says turn left, I go right. Mm. If the airport sign says departures on the upper level, yeah. I go on the arrivals yeah. level. There's, there's got to be a better way. Mm -hmm. and, and I think in your experience of your travels yeah. and mine, it's when you didn't have plan A working yeah. that it changed your life. Oh, no, like everything. Like it, it's always like, you know, I'm lucky right now but with um, I have this show together with PBS and it's called No Passport Required. And we go to cities in America and we look at the immigrant culture and look at the city and what the immigrant culture in terms of food brought to it. So like in Detroit, we did Arab-American food or New Orleans, we did... Vietnamese American food, or and by the way, when you talk about Detroit, a huge Arab American, yes, influence. Dearborn, Dearborn. My, oh so my, we posted yeah. up. That's where we did the show out of. Yeah, and you realize also that only nine percent of Americans have passports. Actually, right? no, no, it's actually thirty-seven. Thirty-seven. Yes, but wait, that's embarrassing in and of itself, because that means that sixty-three percent of Americans have never left Kansas mm. and don't want to, mm. and they're actually proud of it. You know, why would I ever leave Missouri? I have everything I want yeah, here. Yeah. Oh, my God, help us. But I, I, when I, what I've learned about that yeah. is that the immigrants, the second or first generation, not only do they bring with them the love for their country, they also bring in the love for the new country. Of course. Right? And it's in that combination, great food comes up, right? Because the Lebanese-American food in Dearborn, we're not in Beirut. We're in Dearborn, Detroit. Or the Armenian food in, 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 in L.A., you know, it's very different than what it was, but it's also the love for LA of and course. the love for Armenia is still there. And, and the love an and the love for travel because yes. they understand what it took to get here. Yeah, who who sparked that interest for you? Like you just don't come become no. someone like, hey, I'm gonna go f from New Jersey to 151 countries. No. That doesn't happen. Well, my grandfather was Donald Douglas's assistant. He built Douglas Aviation. He mm -hmm. then became the commissioner of LAX. So when I was growing up, I grew up with all these model airplanes. And I went, wow, that's cool. So and can I blame you for all the delays I've had at LAX? <laughs> <laughs> is that, does that work or no? That doesn't work. Everybody else does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, why not? Why not? No, but honestly, and then when I was a very young guy, yeah. I, I was lucky. I was the youngest correspondent ever hired in the history of Newsweek. They sent me out to L.A., and I was covering everything west of the Mississippi. So I always had a suitcase in the trunk of my car because I was always flying to somewhere 
to cover something. And it dawned on me very early on in my career that nobody was covering travel as news yes. or the process of it or the experience of it other than bad postcards yeah. and brochures. And so then I immersed myself in the actual process. Mm. I, lear- I, I became cockpit and jump seat qualified on planes. I learned, I learned how to work as a flight attendant. I learned how to work on a ship. Yeah. Uh, I then ended up living on a ship. I mean, so... so I worked on a ship. I know what that's about. What ship? Seaborne Cruise Line, of course. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Lux. (laughs) Again, I worked there. (laughs) I never never went... He never came above deck. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Most people come to Aspen to vacation, or maybe to go skiing, or maybe to even come to this food and wine classic. But there's also the Aspen Institute. And if you're looking to, I mean, basically understand new ideas, perhaps share new ideas, or revisit ideas that have tremendous legacy, that's the place to do it. And they have, way before TED Talks, folks, there was the Aspen Institute. Just let's put that on the, on the map. Exactly. And joining me now is the curator for the Aspen Institute and the organizer of something else that has legacy of the 100th anniversary of Bauhaus, Lisa Ballinger. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. First, I mean, you you, you agree with the with the introduction about... I, it's perfect. Okay. And you didn't pay me to say that. I didn't pay you okay. to say that. <laughs> okay. But let's talk about Bauhaus. Not everybody knows what Bauhaus is. That's true. A lot more people know this year than they did previously. But the Bauhaus, in its most simple form, was an art school that was founded in 1919. Modernist? Yep, a modernist art school, exactly, by a gentleman named Walter Gropius, who was an architect. and uh, In he, Germany? In Germany. He founded it in Weimar, Germany. And the school only existed for 14 very short years, but it has had a significant impact on all modern art, architecture, and design in the 20th century. Well, part of it, we mentioned the word simplicity, but it was also space. Yep. It was also light. Yep. It was all, all, it was about returning to a geometric form, to simple colors, um, a reduction of ornamentation and um, simplicity was really, were some of the early tenets. And was part of it the argument that if you had too many colors, it was too distracting or it was too disruptive? No, it was more um, a return to simple forms in order to then grow from there. That's what I think we're talking about the same thing because with the, with the absence of all those colors, you got, to, you got to be a color. Exactly. And also, for instance, in the Aspen Institute campus um, and on 8th Street, from 3rd Street to 8th Street on campus, you see all of the buildings are very banal colors, either gray or white. And that is also very deliberate. That's to, intentional, yes. To not overwhelm the natural environment. That was a big distinction. The exterior of the building should not be the important part of the building. It so was, what Liz is trying to tell you is that there's not a lot of tagging on the buildings. <laughs> there's not a lot of tagging. That's true. Thank goodness. What For people who are visiting the Institute and to see this retrospective, what's the biggest surprise for them? I think that our entire campus is actually one of the last surviving Gesamtkunstwerks. It's a total environment. Say that, that once again. <laughs> Gesamtkunstwerk. That, and sounds, that sounds like something has to be surgically east. removed. <laughs> no, um, this is, it's a German word for a total environment. And the Aspen Institute campus is actually one of the last living 
um, total environments that exist today. Now, you mentioned 14 years, Mm -hmm. right? From 1919 to 1933, more or less. Why so short? Because in 1933, it was shut down by the National Socialists. 1933 was the same year that Hitler became chancellor. And the school was considered too Bolshevistic, too communistic, too radical. And so um, it was raided and it was shut down. That, at that time, it was in Berlin. So it has significant um, political impact. And what happened because of this suffocation of the school, many of the students and the teachers, were, they were called masters, emigrated all across the world to Tel Aviv. There's a huge influence of the house in Tel Aviv, the white city. And um, luckily, a lot of them came to the United States. And that's why the impact is so huge here. How much of the Bauhaus remains in Berlin? Anything? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, Berlin, the main headquarters of the Bauhaus was in Dessau. That was when it was at its heyday. And that building, which was built by Gropius, still exists. It was, it did suffer a lot during World War II, but it survived. And there's actually, there's a tremendous, this Bauhaus celebration is obviously happening in many more places just than in Aspen, Colorado. And there was actually a new uh, Bauhaus museum that was just erected in Dessau by an architect named Heike Hanada, who's actually coming here this summer to visit and speak to us. Is there now a renaissance of Bauhaus? Definitely. Yeah, this is the year. Definitely. I mean, we're we're just trying to get it to extend beyond this year. I mean, at the at the university level, at the architectural level. Yes. I mean, there's so much more academic focus on this right now, and the Aspen Institute is actually sponsoring a seminar that's going to happen in August, August fourth through sixth, which is bringing together speakers from all over the world to um, discuss sort of a deep dive into the Bauhaus. I love it. A deep dive yes, into the Bauhaus. Yes, it is. What's the most interesting structure that came out of the Bauhaus movement? That's not a fair question. But that's well, what, I mean, it I, has I'm, to I'm be. here for that. I mean, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, there's two answers to that question because there's what happened at the Bauhaus. Without a doubt, the building that was built by Gropius, that was the Bauhaus building in Dessau, is by far the most interesting building. Um, but I mean, but since many of them emigrated to the United States, yes. what happened here? Well, there was lots of architecture that happened here, and it's interesting because a lot of people associate Bauhaus with either number one, a style, or architectural, and um, neither of those things are actually accurate at all. Because the Bauhaus, at its beginning, was it was an artist commune, and it was um, spawning creativity and experimentation, and there wasn't an architectural school there until 1927. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
guidebook, guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.